0: This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit vobpbiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park.
1: Hey, Mel, Brian
2: here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty.
1: Daddy. Hey, Mikey, if you're going to puke, find the popcorn bowl
3: but my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, no, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget just as soon as, my uh,
4: Mikey, popcorn bowl! Press one to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press two to keep working. Do not press two, just use Instacart, Brian. <laughs>
3: Now, the WBBM Noon Business
1: Hour. It's 12.03 on Thursday afternoon, February 8th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour. I'm Rob Hart. Some of the smallest items on a work-to-do list can be the most draining. We'll learn more in our next segment. But right now, a better-than-expected earnings report is boosting shares of Disney today. Let's take a closer look with Dan Gallagher, tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column in San Francisco. Dan, thank you for joining us. Joining us today, and it seems like uh, one of the highlights of the fourth quarter earnings report is theme park attendance, and that uh, after kind of a lull last year, people are going back to Disney World and Disneyland.
5: Uh, Yeah, it was actually a pleasant surprise, and it was really a a big surprise because a lot of uh, analysts on Wall Street actually thought uh, domestic park revenue would be flat for the for this quarter compared to the same quarter last year. Um, it turned out to be a six percent gain. Uh, their pricing is still holding strong there, and that was that turned out to be a nice surprise because that is. Uh the most profitable part of their business right now.
1: And uh, even though, Dan, uh, I am the host of a business radio show in Chicago, I knew Disney was uh, holding their earnings call yesterday because I received multiple texts from the Swifties in my family about the fact that the Ares Tour movie was going to Disney+. Plus. So that must have been one of the big announcements during that earnings call yesterday.
5: Uh, it was, but it was. It says something about the results that it actually wasn't even the biggest, as big as that is, and as popular as Taylor Swift is. Um, you know, this is going to come exclusively to Disney Plus next month. Um, it'll probably, you know, help viewership and maybe even boost subscribers there. Um, but you know, overall, like when you look at like especially the reaction the stock is getting today, is mostly because they really cut their streaming losses by a big amount. Um, They're doing this new sports streaming super app with um, Warner and Fox um, that could really kind of change the game for how that business has been running. Um, but this big deal with Epic Games. So Taylor Swift was big news, but it was there was a lot of other big news there as well that kind of all
1: fed into it. We're talking to Dan Gallagher, tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column in San Francisco. I want to take a deeper dive into this one and a half billion dollar stake in Epic Games. They are the maker of Fortnite, and what does this mean as far as Disney's intellectual property is concerned? I mean, for for decades there have been Star Wars video games. I mean, back when I was in eighth grade, I spent uh, uh, more time than I should have playing X-Wing and TIE Fighter. But what does this mean for applying that intellectual property today?
5: Well, Disney has kind of seemed to have backtracked out of games in a big way. In fact, uh, LucasArts, which made the Star Wars games, they they closed that off a few years ago. Um, and so a lot of their gaming efforts have been more in, in light of like partnerships. And this is a really big one that they they announced here. Which is going to be, and it, it's a little, it's still a little unclear to me what it's going to, in what it's going to result from it. But it, they're talking about this kind of big immersive universe that sounds like it's going to be kind of a, a big extension of the video game, but also like some new, maybe new attractions even on the parks that are featuring Fortnite. So Disney tends to be a company that tries to get a lot of its. The characters and IP it has in multiple buckets. You got movies, you got theme park rides, you got TV shows, and they try to spread those around. So I think you'll probably see the same here with uh, what they try to work with Fortnite, John.
1: And so we're talking about uh, potential uh, uh, video games, including not only Star Wars but uh, Pixar properties, Marvel, Avatar, and then just uh, the classic Disney characters themselves.
5: Yeah, and they and they've already been doing that. Like I said, like what they. What they got out of doing years ago was, I think, trying to make the games themselves. Um, you know, they partner with Electronic Arts for some of the Star Wars games now, and they have partnerships with other companies to do that. So I think this Epic one is, is a partnership that's that's actually bigger than ones they've done in the past. It's going to kind of bring the Fortnite world into Disney and maybe even some of the Disney world into Fortnite. And I'll, I think we'll have to see what develops here.
1: Dan Gallagher, tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street Column based in San Francisco. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, beware of the vampire task at work. Cash,
3: credit, debit, and totally free. The WBBM Noon Business Hour
1: continues. Sometimes what seems to be the smallest tasks of a job can prove to be a productivity killer. Let's get the insight of Rick Cobb, founder of the workplace consulting firm To discern based in Chicago. Rick, thank you for joining us. Joining us today. And these tasks are called vampire tasks because they suck your productivity, it seems.
6: Right. And you should eat lots of garlic.
1: No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, because if people coming up to you and talking to you is a real they problem, <laughs> uh, they'll just avoid you entirely. <laughs>
6: Exactly. No. So they are. There are a lot of administ- administrivia, is a term that we used to use back in the day, a lot of things that are just sort of pedantic routine functions. And the more, you know, the average employee at a Fortune 1000 company is exposed to about 80 eight zero different software and app functions and, and work. So just the, the knowing how to do the stuff and, and complying, and there's all sorts of different surveys that marketing wants, that human resources wants, that the operations people want. And those really aren't direct contribution to productivity. They're more tracking your productivity. And a lot of people get stuck tracking their productivity and act, instead of being productive.
1: One thing I noticed, uh, especially it, in, in the last 25 years of my professional experience, is there are so many more centralized HR functions than there used to be. And mm-hmm. to those of us who are not in the human resources capacity, uh, it may seem like a lot of unnecessary technological hoops to jump through. But if you are on the HR side of things, it's a remarkable time saver. So what could be a, a, a vampire task on one side of the organization could be a tremendous uh, productivity tool at another point in the organization.
6: Well, 100 percent. And a lot of the things that human resources is trying to do is actually evaluate how their employees are interacting and how they're motivated. And so where this tends to break down is when senior management doesn't make it clear to the employee why we are doing this and how what you are doing is a contribution. But there's another issue I think that's even uh, a bigger problem for people like me who are boomers, who, who, have, who were raised in the hierarchical function, which is we tend to do one of two things. We either overestimate our ability to do things, and most of us think we're the best driver and the best this and the best that, or we downplay our contributions. Like, oh, I'll just be the good soldier and people will recognize my work. Neither of those is good for you. And I can't tell you the number of times where I've had clients who have worked themselves to the point where they can't do all the things they're being asked to do. Everyone's taking them for granted because they never they never negotiate any additional time. And then at some point they're like, oh, this person can't do their job anymore. Well, that's because they're doing five jobs and no one's ever really acknowledged how much of a load they're carrying because they just say, okay, I'll do it, fine.
1: One study says the average person spends at least 21 hours per week doing uh, these administrative functions in their jobs. That's according to a, a survey from 2021. Uh, it's inevitable. It's like death and taxes. You can't really avoid it. So, uh, how can you structure your time uh, to make sure it does not become a productivity killer?
6: Right. Well, and I think you have to try and put these in pockets. So the things that that we get stuck in, which are email and and texts. Those need to be put somewhere and put in a bottle or on the shelf somewhere. So there's a time that you allocate for that. And outside of that window of looking at your email and looking at your text, you clear the decks and you don't do anything. The other thing that's important is to isolate pockets of time to get things done. Have a realistic expectation for what you need to get done and how long it's gonna take. And then understand that it's gonna take you five or 10 minutes to get your head clear and get your desk clear and just kind of lock yourself down to that project. And anything that interrupts you during that process is probably going to cost you another 10 to 30 minutes to get back on the game. But the thing that I think is really critical for people to understand is they have to be self-aware about additional work. If you have a company where there are four bosses that can give you work, and they don't talk to each other, that's what's called a siloed environment. And what can happen is, You know, boss A can come to you with something. Boss B can come to you with something else. And boss C can come to you with a third thing. And none of them know what the other person's given you to do. So you have to find a way to negotiate that time by saying, Rob, I'm happy to do that. Here are the three things I'm doing right now. Which of these should I table? How can we manage this? They've given you the problem in a polite way. Try to give them the problem back to solve because you don't have the authority to say no to your boss. So you have to get somebody to advocate for you and manage your time.
1: Rick Cobb, founder of the workplace consulting firm 2DISCERN in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next, Google is conducting a major rebrand of its AI chatbot and assistant.
0: Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced.
3: Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. The
1: WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Google is rebranding its Bard AI chatbot under the name of Gemini. Let's discuss the move with Art Hogan, Chief Market Strategist of B Riley Financial based in New York. Art, thank you for joining us today. What is the significance of this rebrand? How is it going to help uh, Google in its battle against uh, Microsoft and OpenAI?
7: Yeah, that's a great question. So, Understanding both Google and Microsoft introduced their chatbots last year, and Google uh, seemed to stumble a little bit out of the gate, but is trying to play catch up here. The, the real question here um, for analysts on the street was how do they monetize this? I, you know, understanding Google's business model, we made an assumption that it would make their search more productive, give us better Google searches, and therefore the advertisers would want to spend more money on Google. Um, But I would offer up the the new wrinkle to that, and Microsoft obviously was charging users uh, about 19 bucks a month to put that on top of their uh, Microsoft uh, software um, package, whether you use uh, Word or Excel or uh, any of the Microsoft offerings. So uh, what Google has now done is said, yes, not only that, we're going to rename it because the AI behind Bard um, has this name. This is what it's called. And so we want you to know Gemini is is uh all of our ai models and now you have access to them and they're rolling that out today and they also have a paid monthly subscription to this so it's their way of saying yeah we're not just monetizing this through better google searches and advertising we've got a business model that uh, we're going to be charging people 19 dollars a month or thereabouts and it looks to be very exciting so the the subscription piece of this is if you actually really want to get into this and, and and use it robustly for example if I'm uh, in Google and I say to myself, oh, "Geez, I wonder what I should ask Rob about today when we talk on the radio," it would immediately tell me that I should ask him about what he, where he thinks the new White Sox uh, stadium should be <laughs> and how he's going to park there, or you know, or, or what uh, what he thinks of Mongo Mc, uh, Michael uh, getting into the Hall of Fame. So,
1: well, to, well, would, to answer all those questions, Art: uh, one, I think it's a great idea. Two, probably a 35th in Shields. And three, oh, long overdue for Mongo.
7: Right, long overdue. I agree. So it's going to make us more productive, and and the, what what Google is really trying to describe to us, we also have a business model, and and that's where I think analysts first said Microsoft is a bit of a head of, of the game because they're showing us how they're going to monetize this, not just make us more productive, but how do they make money with this? And I think 2024 is the year where while 23 was all about AI enthusiasm. 24 zeros. okay how are you making money on this another example of that was uh, with arm holdings that reported last night talked about how much they're making with this new ai re- revolution so it's about monetization and they're showing us how they're going to make money using their um their new gemini product and how much they're going to charge for it
1: art hogan chief market strategist b riley financial based in new york thank you for joining us today coming up in technology thursday arming yourself against a cyber attack <laughs> The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments in the case centered on former President Trump's eligibility for this year's ballot. The Marine Corps confirms that all five crew members have died after a helicopter crash in california it's technology thursday the targeting of a leading chicago children's hospital is the latest reminder of the danger of cyber attacks which can even target individuals business the markets are mixed right now the dow is down 41 points the nasdaq is up 47 the s p 500 down just a fraction 57 degrees right now in chicago under partly sunny skies at 12:31, topping our news at the half hour Supreme Court justices are considering a landmark case where they are asked to consider whether former President Trump can be declared ineligible from a presidential ballot for his conduct in connection with the January 2021 assault on the Capitol. The case stems from Colorado's decision to exclude him from the primary ballot, citing an anti-insurrection provision of the 14th Amendment. This is Trump lawyer Jonathan Mitchell. A state cannot exclude any candidate for federal office from the ballot on account of Section 3. And any state that does so is violating the holding of term limits by altering the Constitution's qualifications for federal office. At one point, Mitchell also argued the incident was not only a riot, was only a riot and not an insurrection. The military is confirming the death of five Marines whose helicopter went down during a snowstorm in the mountains of Southern California. This
5: isn't the first crash involving the CH-53E aircraft, which is used to carry heavy military equipment. Four Marines were killed in California during a routine training mission in 2018. And 12 Marines died in 2016 when the same helicopters collided during a nighttime training exercise off the coast of Oahu in Hawaii. Like all aircraft, uh, they, they do have mishaps and do have accidents. At one point, the search had to be delayed because of dangerous weather conditions.
1: Michael George, CBS News. It's 12.32 as the noon business hour continues. Markets are mixed right now. Let's welcome in J.J. Kinahan, CEO of IG North America, president of Tasty Trade in Chicago. J.J., thank you for joining us today. And what's really moving the markets on this Thursday afternoon?
8: Well, you, you know, you talked about Disney is really the story of the day, so to speak. You know, is, is the magic back in the magic kingdom, so to speak. Uh, that's what's really holding up the Dow and the S&P 500 right now overall. Combine that with IBM, uh, another you know, stock that's uh, a, a pretty widely held. And if you took those two away, we would not be hanging around the unchanged mark on the S&P 500 and the Dow that we've been all day long. Uh, they, they've both been a little bit down below. But that, those two are really the story of the day. And uh, one thing I'd like to add on IBM, Rob, which is really interesting, for, you know, we monitor, obviously, what our clients are trading. So IBM, as uh, many folks listening will remember, about a week, week and a half ago, had a big up move on earnings, you know, one of their biggest up moves in years. When that happened, our clients started to short that and, and, and get short IBM. And as I look at our biggest short positions today, IBM's rallying. Our clients are continuing to sell into that. That's not normal behavior necessarily for retail traders, so I think it's something really worth watching over the next few weeks is the fact that the story IBM is selling really isn't being believed by the retail community
1: and then uh, the s and p five hundred is is knocking on the door of five thousand right now it's uh trading at four thousand nine hundred ninety five um what happens uh if it goes above five thousand intraday or closes above five thousand uh, what does that represent as maybe a psychological barrier
8: yeah, I think you're hitting one hundred percent on it particularly on the closing of it more than necessarily the uh passing it yeah, passing it's great et cetera. Well, if you close above 5,000, you break above, uh, obviously, levels we've never seen before. But you, you, you close at something that, for whatever reason, these big round numbers uh, on any index seem to serve as support and resistance. And once you're able to break through them and close above them, what had been the resistance hard to get through all of a sudden becomes support hard to get back under.
1: And then back on the Disney side of things, um, uh, one of the reasons why the uh, uh, their fourth quarter earnings uh, looked uh, better than expected was that they managed to uh, trim their streaming losses. But they did have one element of their business, which is extremely consumer focused, uh, that surprised on the upside, and that is theme park attendance. And is that kind of a bellwether for the economy that uh, people are willing to spend on really big ticket items like taking the family to Disney World?
8: It absolutely is, and I think that that's really interesting. And if you look overall at how Disney's revenue breaks down, their media and entertainment is actually about just over 55% of their revenue. Parks become about 45% of the revenue, and then others, you know, 10%. So for this really adds a lot to their bottom line if they're able to continue to do this. Now, I, I, I think that that was, as you said, maybe a little bit of a surprise at how strong it was as we just the one thing you have to remember, that's a backward looking statistic. So as we go forward, it'll be interesting to see as these numbers have just come out this week about you know uh, credit card debt being at an all-time high, et cetera. I think the real concern is, can you keep that momentum? As we both know, you know this is one of those things that parents do save for to take their children to Disney World or grandparents or whoever it may be to take children to Disney World it's kind of a big a big deal obviously it's, it's not an inexpensive vacation so can you keep that momentum if spending starts to cut it off
1: J.J. Kinahan, CEO of IG North America, president of Tasty Trade in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next in Technology Thursday, gauging the risk of a potential attack on your personal devices. Money conversation that pays a big dividend. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Technology Thursday. Cyber attacks continue to increase, shutting down vital systems at Chicago's Lurie Children's Hospital, but even home devices face significant risks. Joining us to discuss is Jerry Irvine, CIO of Prescient Solutions and member of the U.S. Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force based in Chicago. Jerry, thank you for joining us today. And on the list of worst case scenarios as far as cyber attacks are concerned, we always talk about attacks on infrastructure, pipelines, power grids, things things like that. But uh, I would imagine a cyber attack rendering a children's hospital uh, 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 helpless for all intents and purposes has got to be high up on that list.
2: Absolutely, and, and uh, the hackers are really going after medical institutions um, because they are vulnerable. They don't always have the best security, um, and uh, there's so many different organizations that connect to them, small doctors, prescription companies. They have so many different companies that are connecting to them that there's multiple ways to get in. So it, it's, it's very hard and very sad.
1: And then uh, when it comes to uh, uh, hackers going after individuals as well as institutions, uh, that hacker or hackers could find a way into your home uh, through your smart devices.
2: Absolutely. And, and you know, that is one of their, their targets. They want to get into your security in, uh, systems or into your cameras, into your cell phones, whatever it is. So that they can then grab your information on your network. Your Wi-Fi is connected to your PC, which you use to to get into a bank. And so if they can get into your network, they can get into your systems, they can get your user IDs and passwords and they can get into your financial institutions. Now, that is only a secondary target for them though. What a lot of these organizations are doing today with internet of things, so all these things that are connected to the internet, and there was the, the false news, if you will, today about a uh, toothbrushes being hacked and used uh, for a denial of service attack. Well, stranger things have happened. In 2016, smart toasters were used to create denial of service attacks. Uh, We've got uh, your video cameras, your smart TVs. All of these things have been grabbed by hackers. You don't even know what's going on. It really doesn't even affect you, and they're not trying to get your business. What they're doing is using your devices as robots to talk to devices out on the Internet and make them slow down. So, for example, in in, uh, 2010, in October of 2010, smart refrigerators, TVs and, and other smart things were used to target multiple financial institutions, from Chase Bank to Wells Fargo, all of them, and and they just kept talking to these banks so much that their firewalls could no longer respond. So that was called a denial of service. Now many people think that's only a, a, a bit of an inconvenience, right? It brings their system down, so what? No, actually, what they're doing is they're looking for other weaknesses. They're looking for other routes to get into the network. So as their firewalls are being attacked, they can find another way in to get in and now compromise those devices like they did with Target and other organizations to grab user IDs, passwords, and financial information of the users that are on those networks. So what they're doing is they're using our consumer products, which are not as secure as business products, to gain access into the business world and grab financial information.
1: On the subject of gaining access, uh, and, and I'm, I'm sure maybe as a cybersecurity professional, you see this happening on social media, and you must pull your hair out when you're looking at it. But I, I saw it today, and they always have these kind of viral prompts where it's, whatever uh, was the song that was number one on your birthday, uh, that's your energy going into 2024. And basically, it's 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 supposed to get you to reveal your birthday, which is a very common password recovery question. and. And uh, is that a piece of uh, uh, a cyber hygiene that a lot of people need to clean up?
2: Absolutely, and, and it's it's not only to get their birthday, but but to find out what their potential security questions are. Uh, I don't know if you recall, but uh, um, years ago there was a candidate for the United States uh, president whose system, uh, Sarah Palin, whose system was hacked because. She used the security questions to reset her password as her daughter's name, her dog's name, and her birth date. So when a hacker went in and said, I forgot my password, and, and they already looked on the Internet and found out her daughter's name, the dog, and the, the birth they were able to get in and reaccess their account. So I always tell people, when you get those security questions, don't use your answers. Use your mother-in-laws. Use your friend, best friends. Somebody else's. Use their birthday. Use their driver's name. Use that. Things that you'll be able to remember, but things that organizations or hackers will not be able to grab from you
1: some great advice. Jerry Irvine, CIO, Prescient Solutions, member of the U.S. Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force in Chicago. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Credit card balances jump to an all-time high as more consumers fall behind on their payments. Joining us with the latest details is Ted Rossman, Senior Industry Analyst with Bankrate.com in New York. Uh, Ted, thank you for joining us today. And how? what is the rate of increase uh, for, for credit card balances balances for the average user who is carrying a balance?
9: We're talking big increases. According to the New York Fed report that came out earlier this week, credit card balances have jumped 5% over the past quarter, 15% over the past year, and a whopping 47% since the beginning of 2021. That's where I think we really see that cumulative effect of high inflation and high interest rates.
1: And are Americans keeping up with the higher balances, or are they falling behind?
9: Delinquencies are actually at their highest point since 2012 on both credit cards and auto loans. The industry has been talking for a while now about normalization, as in lenders knew that delinquencies were going to rise off their pandemic lows because that was artificial due to stimulus and people spending less. The thing is, though, we've blown past normal, at least if you define the pre-pandemic normal as 2019. I would still say that banks don't seem particularly alarmed, even though these rates have gone up a lot. Credit card delinquencies have basically doubled in the past two years. Banks still seem to feel okay about it, largely because of the strong job market. And they seem to feel that they're going to level off from here after a period of big increases.
1: What is the definition of delinquency as far as credit cards and car loans are concerned? Is it one missed payment? Is it several months of missed payments?
9: We're usually talking about 30 days late as the intro to delinquency, and then it just gets worse from there. You know, something like 90 days late, that's often the time that you might have a car repossessed. For credit cards, it's more like 180 days late becomes the, the charge-off kind of scenario, um, but yeah, the the intro to delinquency path has actually been worse than the, the repossessions or the charge-offs. And I think that shows that people are doing okay, by and large. I mean, it doesn't feel great because of inflation. But in other words, even if people fall behind, Most of them are getting back on track before it gets really serious, but there can still be negative effects on your credit score, even for a 30-day late payment.
1: And very quickly, uh, the first thing you want to do if you are carrying a balance is uh, try to get out from under those uh, 20%-plus interest rates uh, charged by credit cards. And what are some quick ways to to get around that?
9: Get a 0% balance transfer credit card. That's my top tip. These offers last as long as 21 months, on cards like the Wells Fargo Reflect and the City Simplicity. It's a great way to move your existing high-cost debt over to a new credit card with a generous 0% intro period. Ted Rossman,
1: Senior Industry Analyst at Bankrate.com in New York. Thank you for joining us today. If you missed any part of today's show, just go to our stream and skip back to the time you want. There's a pause and rewind function that works both online and with the Odyssey app.